Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. On this episode of Newt's World, when Gary Shapley, a longtime IRS investigator, wanted to come forward with information that the federal government had mishandled the tax investigation into Hunter Biden, the president's son. The details he had to share were so sensitive, he couldn't even provide it to his own lawyer without potentially committing a felony. So through his attorney, he approached Empower Oversight, a group composed of lawyers with deep experience in Capitol Hill investigations who coached him on a strategy for how to get the information to Congress lawfully. Months later, Gary Shapley and a fellow IRS investigator, Joseph Ziegler, were testifying in an open session before the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, detailing their claims that the president's son had received special treatment. Here to discuss how they help whistleblowers who come forward, I'm really pleased to welcome my two guests, Tristan Lovett and Jason Foster, leaders of Empower Oversight. Tristan and Jason, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Let's start at the beginning. What you're doing is fascinating, but can you talk about the important role that whistleblowers play in government oversight? Sure. So, yes, Tristan and I both spent years working for the patron saint of whistleblowers, Senator Chuck Grassley. And, you know, in our experience there, what we learned, especially working on the Operation Fast and Furious gun running scandal there, is that whistleblowers really supercharge any kind of oversight effort because what they do is they give you the opportunity to get information from the executive branch that the executive branch would otherwise not want you to have. And it's incredibly useful, especially when you're doing oversight of federal law enforcement and the DOJ, because that is some of the most challenging work when you're in a legislative branch oversight role, is to get information from them on particularly pending matters. And with whistleblower laws, they specifically protect law enforcement officers, like the ATF agents who came forward in Fast and Furious, like the IRS agents who have come forward here in the Hunter Biden matter. The law specifically 
ensures that they can come forward and bring law enforcement information about misconduct to oversight authorities, both in the IG community and in Congress. Probably the most famous person that you have helped so far, and the one which has certainly gotten the most national coverage, is an IRS senior agent, Gary Shapley. He's a longtime investigator. He came out at, I think, great courage, took a real risk to tell the truth about how the tax investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter, was being totally mishandled. And you ended up playing a key role in his ability to speak up. Tell us a little bit about Gary and what he's like. Sure. So Gary's been an IRS criminal investigator for 14 years. He's a supervisor. He supervises a unit of 12 elite agents who focus on international tax and money laundering cases. He's been extremely successful and is extremely well regarded among multiple U.S. attorney's offices he's worked with around the country. He's responsible for cases that have brought in $3.5 billion for the U.S. taxpayer. He worked on the Credit Suisse case. and He is the real deal. So it's not just some mid-level bureaucrat risking a cushy government job. This is somebody who's very well respected within the IRS, very well respected around the country with federal law enforcement. And so for him to risk all of that and come forward, and, and I'll tell you, when you hear him tell his story, he was very reluctant to come to the conclusions that he did, that the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office was giving Hunter Biden, the kid glove treatment. He's very familiar with the typical dynamic between prosecutors and agents, that agents always think they have the case made and prosecutors always want more information. That's not what this is about. He was giving them the benefit of the doubt at every turn for years. And there came a time when he heard the U.S. attorney, Mr. Weiss, directly contradicting what the attorney general, Mr. Garland, had said in sworn testimony on Capitol Hill about whether he could bring charges in D.C. And, and California without permission of those Biden appointed U.S. attorneys. Weiss admitted privately to Gary that he wasn't allowed to do that. And that's what Gary calls his red line meeting. He could not sit back and allow that false impression in the public to stay uncorrected. And so he felt he had a duty to come forward. And he struggled many sleepless nights, as he said, about the decision to come forward and risk what he was risking, because he knew that it would be in the spin cycle of politics and he would be a political football being kicked by both sides for their own purposes. So what was the red line that made him feel like he had to come forward? So Gary had been assigned to the case in the beginning of 2020. And for all of 2020, all of 2021, most of 2022, they had been working on developing the case, on bringing it forward. And so the IRS agents, with the recommendation of David Weiss's office, sent those to Justice Department headquarters in early 2022. And through the course of that year, the IRS and FBI agents understood that the charges, which were recommended, included three felonies for tax years 2014, 2018, and 2019, and then misdemeanors for 2015 through 2019, each of those years. They understood that those needed to be presented in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, which happened in March of 2022, and then subsequently in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Central District of California. Tax charges have to be brought where the taxpayer lived and should have filed the tax returns, and that was D.C. during the bulk of the Obama administration, and then Hunter Biden moved to L.A., and so that's the Central District of California. And so the agents were operating with this assumption that 
yes, they need to be presented outside of the District of Delaware, where Weiss was the U.S. attorney, but that based on representations made publicly by the attorney general, including to the Senate, that U.S. Attorney Weiss would have the ability to do that, even though that's not your typical authority. You have to have the approval of the U.S. attorneys from another district. And so after presenting those charges in D.C., in March of 2022, and then again in California, this October 7th red line meeting is when Weiss told the two senior officials in the IRS's DC field office, and then in the FBI's Baltimore field office, which has the jurisdiction over Delaware, told them that he wasn't the deciding official on whether these charges were brought, and that in fact, DC's US attorney, Matt Graves, who was appointed by President Biden and has an obvious conflict of interest, that Graves had rejected the charges. Initially, when the case was presented in DC, the first assistant US attorney, which is the number two official, was very positive about the case, thought it was a slam dunk case. But when it was presented to US attorney Graves, he rejected it. And this was news to the agents on October 7th. And U.S. Attorney Weiss further told this group that he had requested special charging authority from the Justice Department after that rejection from Graves, but that it was denied by the Department of Justice, which told him just to work through the process. And so for Gary, realizing that despite what Attorney General Garland was saying publicly and in Congress, that there were these unmitigated conflicts of interests where Biden appointees were rejecting solid charges that should have gone against Hunter Biden that were endorsed by the U.S. Attorney's Office, by the investigators, and that not only would those 2014 and 2015 charges be allowed to expire, the statute of limitations would be let go, and the government would never charge those years. But if California's U.S. Attorney rejected the charges, they could see the entire case go with no charges. And this to Gary, after all the work and the years they put in, And the fact that it just contradicted what Merrick Garland had said publicly to him was a time that he felt Congress needed to know about this behind-the-scenes information. I have two questions about this whole whistleblower process. One is, what seems to be the ultimate motivation that leads people to take these risks and go through it? And the second is, as you look out at your vast knowledge of the government, where are the kind of places you hope we will find whistleblowers who will really help us understand what's going on. The primary motivation for people to come forward is usually to try to correct some kind of wrong. It's insiders seeing wrongdoing that they can't in good conscience just look the other way. And we need whistleblower protections to enable them to be able to come forward and bring that information to management of the agency and to outside oversight authorities who can actually do something about it. The reason that people should blow the whistle if they see something wrong, is the opportunity to make a difference and to make sure that if good people do nothing, then evil will flourish. And so the primary motivation now is what has always been. We all need to work hard to make sure that we honor that commitment as a country to people who come forward and speak up about wrongdoing, that we're not going to allow them to be retaliated against and targeted and silenced because they're speaking up about doing the right thing. And in terms of what areas where it needs to occur the most, I think now it needs to occur the most in the politicized Justice Department. I mean, we need other FBI agents, folks in the Justice Department who see politicizing and weaponizing of our justice system for political purposes and other improper purposes. The country can't survive that kind of trend. And so it's vital that people like that seek advice from an organization, either us or someone like us, 
so that you can do it in a way where you're protected and take that risk to come forward. It's a very personal decision. I would never really urge someone to blow the whistle if they're not comfortable doing it because there are real risks and it's a very sober decision to make. But if you see something that's wrong that you can't in good conscience let go, find an organization like ours and find someone to help you and get legal advice, do it properly, do it legally, but blow the whistle to the oversight authorities who can do something to fix it. The American people have a piece in all of this as well, I would add, which is that it's important to recognize that protecting whistleblowers is good policy, no matter who's in power. And that, I think, was another big motivation for creating Empower is to be able to promote the protection of whistleblowers. And I think the point that we all need to understand is it doesn't really matter where they come from. If they're within government and there are problems in government, we should all want to hear about those. When I left Capitol Hill, I went to an agency called the Office of Special Counsel, which is different from the Mueller Special Counsel, but it's the agency charged with protecting whistleblowers. And then from there, I was confirmed to a board called the Merit Systems Protection Board. And again, in those, I saw hundreds and hundreds of whistleblowers. You just see that it's so often the case that people, when they hear about someone's disclosures, they automatically decide, oh, I like that whistleblower or I don't like that whistleblower. Maybe there's some in the middle, right, where they say, well, I don't know anything about that. But the importance of just recognizing that protecting whistleblowers is an across the board thing. It protects all of us by protecting the principle of people coming forward to find the problems in government. Because when you get away from that, you'll end up with problems festering like we have in the Justice Department. Because too often, people pick their teams and their side and don't recognize the universal principle that the Constitution was really centered around, which is power corrupts. That's a central view of the founders. And so we have checks and balances throughout government. But again, for Congress to do its constitutional oversight duties, it has to have whistleblowers and they're not going to come forward if it's a coin toss, whether or not their disclosures are going to be well received or not. And so I just think it's really important that, again, we as a country applaud whistleblowers. We encourage them for what they do. And even when it turns out that the facts on the ground don't look like what we thought they did or what we hoped they would. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when Against all odds, we balance the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. 
That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as five things. Listen to five good things on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learned something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Go to gingrich360.com book and order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com slash book. You all helped organize the Senate Whistleblower Protection Caucus back in 2014. Is it still up and running? Yes. What is its role? After the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act, which was a law passed in 2012, that was the latest update to the whistleblower protection laws, just around that time and since then, there's really been a loss of knowledge or had been a loss of knowledge about those that really understood the importance of whistleblower protections, not to mention their mechanics. And so the idea of the Whistleblower Protection Caucus was to help basically train members and help them to learn, to educate them on the importance of protecting whistleblowers. And so that was why I had proposed it within the office. I left at the end of 2014. So we announced it in 2014. Ron Wyden signed up to be the first member. We wanted to be bipartisan. And it had been announced that it would sign up members to 2014 and launch it in 2015, by which point I was gone. But I think it's been very, very useful over these years in having a group of individuals who might not agree with each other on each individual whistleblower that comes forward, or even on the whistleblower policy in the minute details of that. But understanding that on both sides of the aisle, it's so important to protect those with the knowledge to shine a light on waste, fraud, and abuse. If you want to drain the swamp, those are the people you need to talk to. And because of that, I think the Whistleblower Protection Caucus has been immensely useful over the years. Now, as I understand it, this led you guys to draft the FBI Whistleblower Protection Act of 2016, which comes even after the earlier act. Why was it specifically FBI? When I was working at Senator Grassley's office, I handled his whistleblower policy specifically. And one of the things that Senator Grassley had focused on for many years was oversight of the FBI. And to go way back in time, 1978, actually post-Watergate, is when the original kind of the, what became the base of the Whistleblower Protection Act was passed. It's called the Civil Service Reform Act. And in that law, the FBI was excluded when all other civil servant whistleblower protections were created. So the FBI was lumped in with the intelligence community well before 9-11, well before it was actually any part of the intelligence community. And essentially, that was just because of the remaining legacy of J. Edgar Hoover, who had not been dead for very long. And so there was just a lot of fear of the FBI, and there was a prestige law enforcement organization. So 
it was excluded. And over the years, it showed again and again what an impact that had. So when Senator Grassley began focusing on the FBI crime labs scandals, when a whistleblower named Frederick Whitehurst came to him at the end of the 1980s and through the 1990s, Senator Grassley focused on trying to help Fred Whitehurst draw attention to those problems with the FBI crime lab. And it became clear that the FBI is virtually non-existent whistleblower protections. They just got an afterthought in the law. Here's one section of the law for all of the typical civil servants, for all typical whistleblowers. And then the next section just says, well, FBI, here's the general ideal and you implement it however you like. And they hadn't even implemented regulations for a long time. So by the 2010s, we were doing a lot of oversight to highlight the fact that there needed to be legislative changes. And that was really the impetus for the FBI Whistleblower Protection Act of 2016, which really the goal as a larger bill was to help get them at least something more comparable to typical protections. It ultimately ended up being stripped down. And Jason maybe can share a little bit about that. But the version of the bill that Senator Grassley introduced would have made large scale changes. And only a portion of that we were able to get negotiated through, again, because others just objected to them being on the same footing. Right. The bottom line, most people don't understand this or are surprised when they learn of it, even sophisticated insiders in D.C. But the bottom line is that FBI agents do not have the same level of whistleblower protections and the same process to access and remedy whistleblower retaliation that every other law enforcement officer has. If you're at the DEA or the ATF or IRS criminal investigators like Gary Shapley, those folks they have a big leg up on other folks in the FBI because they have the full process protections of being able to go to the office of special counsel, being able to appeal to the Merit Systems Protection Board. And the FBI just simply has this carve out and this exception and special treatment that they don't have to honor the same whistleblower protections. The management at the FBI doesn't have to honor the same whistleblower protections that management at other law enforcement does. And the main difference now in the modern era versus back in 1978 is We have these multiple other federal law enforcement agencies that are not as big as the FBI, but all put together, they are comparable to the FBI, and the world does not spin off its axis just because they have to obey whistleblower protection statutes. And so those statutes, in my view, should apply 100% equally to the FBI, but sort of because of the history of the development of the law, that's not the case, even today, even with some of the corrections we've made. So having participated both on the investigation and legislative side of the Congress, You guys create Empower Oversight, the Empower Oversight Whistleblowers and Research, which becomes Empower. Why did you do that and what was your goal in creating Empower? Well, I had left Capitol Hill in 2018 after serving for about eight years with Senator Grassley as his chief investigator on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Worked in the private sector for a couple of years And I was looking for a way to get back into serving the mission that I had served for most of my career when I had worked for Senator Grassley for 14 years. And there are lots of other whistleblower groups out there. Most of them are left of center. We have met them over the years. We have good relationships with them. We applaud what they do. But the fact is, a lot of times, if a whistleblower's disclosures, let's say, you know, implicate or are difficult for people on the left or for a Democrat administration, those organizations might not be the best place for someone to go. (laughs) So, and in fact, we saw that during 
Operation Fast and Furious, John Dodson, we tried to get him help from some of the existing organizations. And to be candid, again, I have friends who work with those organizations. I'm not criticizing them, but it's just political reality, right? They just weren't willing to take up something and take on the Obama administration. And there weren't really equivalent organizations that were right of center or who were staffed by people who were right of center. And so we saw there's basically a need to fill that gap. Another reason I launched it is because I wanted to have an organization that would not just focus on whistleblower policy and just focus on representing people in their fights against retaliation, although that's obviously part of what we do and very necessary. But I also wanted an organization that would help hold the oversight authorities in the IG community and on Capitol Hill accountable for actually doing something about the underlying problems that whistleblowers were raising concerns about because the number one reason that whistleblowers don't come forward, most people think it's fear of retaliation. It's not. Most whistleblowers who don't come forward say nothing because they don't think the risk is worth the reward. They don't think that anybody will do anything to fix the problems. So why risk your career to raise your hand and speak out? So part of what we do with our relationships, deep relationships on Capitol Hill and in the IG community is we can help make sure that when someone comes to us and we help them craft their disclosure. We help them do it in the right way to make sure that it's legal, that it's proper, that it's done in the best way to protect them. But we can also help make sure that the people they're blowing the whistle to actually follow through and put pressure on those folks to follow through and do something about it and fix the problem. You must have a pretty good bit of business. With more than we can handle. Yeah. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when Against all odds, we balance the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you.
Since January 6th, the FBI has pushed out a number of FBI employees who were not present at the Capitol on January 6th, but hold differing views than FBI leadership. One of the keys was Steve Friend and Marcus Allen. Can you talk about their role as whistleblowers? So Steve Friend and Marcus Allen are among a number of FBI whistleblowers who have come to us. And a big part of what they have disclosed is really just that, especially after January 6th of 2020, and these are all FBI agents. These are not individuals who were present at the Capitol, outside of the Capitol, much less inside of it. These are just FBI agents who have a different view of the world in some ways, and particularly of how aggressively the FBI was going after people who also weren't necessarily at the Capitol. And so the disclosures that they made about, for instance, Bank of America coming forward with the credit card information, everybody who used a Bank of America product in Washington, D.C. on January 5th or 6th or 7th, handing that over to the FBI. These are the types of things that concerned a lot of people within the FBI. And what we see is that the deputy FBI director, Paula Bate, really just early on said, if you have a problem with how we're approaching these, maybe this isn't the organization for you. In a large scale way, a lot of people have been pushed out of the FBI, including those who were hesitant about receiving the vaccine, which was mandated within the FBI. And so that's a big part of how Steve Friend, Marcus Allen, and others like them came forward. And again, the whole point of Empower is to help bring those messages to those who need to know about it. And the Weaponization Subcommittee on Capitol Hill was formed precisely to look at things like this. And that's somewhere that I testified back in May alongside Steve Friend, Marcus Allen, and another whistleblower named Garrett O'Boyle. And they all highlighted, again, how the FBI has just really changed how its culture and how it approaches issues out of its workforce. It's inevitable that Half of them are going to have maybe different political views than the other half. That's just the country that we live in. But the FBI is still working on taxpayer dollars, and it can't just push out everybody that doesn't have the same worldview that those at the top have. So Marcus Allen and Steve Friend, one of the key themes in both of their cases, and one of the reasons that we've been pushing them and going to the committees to raise their concerns is – they really illustrate a new tactic that the FBI has been using very aggressively in order to retaliate against whistleblowers, and that is the abuse of the security clearance process. Because of a Supreme Court case called Navy versus Egan, they have a belief that they can essentially suspend someone's security clearance, take them off the payroll for an indefinite period of time while they, quote, investigate whether or not they're suitable for a clearance, that there's can never be any judicial review of that. And they have begun using that as a way to retaliate against people for either unpopular political opinions about January 6th and other things, the vaccine mandate, things like that. They use it as a real bureaucratic weapon to be able to remove someone from the payroll where they're not allowed to work. And then during that period where they're off the payroll, they're not getting a paycheck and they're not allowed to take outside work without permission of the bureau, which, of course, they deny. Basically, it's a financial squeeze to get people to quit without actually going through any of the internal appeals procedures and due process to try to vindicate and challenge the suspension of their security clearance. So that's the commonality between Marcus Allen and Steve Friend's case. Another case which has really gotten a lot of national attention is Gary Shapley, who's the longtime IRS investigator, who really believed that the government had mishandled the tax investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter. But he had information so sensitive, he couldn't even give it to his own lawyer without potentially committing a felony. So through his attorney, 
he approached you guys at Empower Oversight, and they managed to coach him into how to do this. And you guys played a major role in helping us. Can you walk us through how that's evolved? There's a real problem that we had to try to solve there because there is a statute that allows someone in the IRS or anybody who appropriately has access to tax return information is normally a felony to disclose that information without authorization. But there's an exception in the statute for blowing the whistle and specifically blowing the whistle to the proper places on Capitol Hill, which has to be the chair of the Ways and Means Committee or the chair of the Finance Committee, the two committees that write the tax laws. If someone had gone to the Judiciary Committee, for example, and disclosed tax return information because they thought they had a right to blow the whistle that way, they would be in trouble. They'd be in serious trouble because the statute doesn't allow that. So there were some really fine, touchy waters that he needed to navigate here. So the statute, while it allows you to disclose tax return information to the oversight committees, the tax committees on Capitol Hill, it doesn't have any explicit exception for sharing the same sorts of information with your own attorneys. So what we had to do was before he could even give any details to his own attorneys, we had to figure out how to solve that problem. And Mark Lytle, our co-counsel with Nixon Peabody, ended up writing a letter on April 19th of 2023 to all the committees, all the relevant committees, judiciary and the tax writing committees, and basically outlined this problem and said, I have a client He'd like to make the following disclosures. We generically described those disclosures had to do with protecting a politically connected individual, preferential treatment for that person, not mitigating conflicts of interest. He could only describe to us and we could only describe to the committees what those allegations were in broad strokes. So we did that and we identified this issue of if he's going to come in and testify to you, we're not going to send him in there without a lawyer beside him to look out for his interests. So the committee needs to figure out a way to solve this. And in fact, we got letters designating two of the three counsels on our team under 6103 as agents of the committee and authorizing them, which the chairs have the power to do under the statute, authorizing them to receive the tax return information, get all the details from Gary so that they could then advise him and sit with him in the interview and help prepare his disclosure for the committees. We did that in a bipartisan way. We did it on both the House and the Senate side. We got buy-in and letters of designation authorizing him to share information with his attorneys from both Senator Wyden, the co-chair of the Whistleblower Protection Caucus in the Senate, the Democrat chair of the Finance Committee, as well as Jason Smith, the Republican chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. And so that was really what sort of cleared the decks for Gary to share with his own attorneys all the details about the deviations from normal criminal procedure that he had seen throughout his time working on the Hunter Biden investigation. And that allowed him to come forward and testify behind closed doors to both the Democrats and the Republicans on the House Ways and Means Committee, which eventually the committee decided on its own, which it also has authority under to do under the statute to vote to release that information, which they did. And then and that's been the subject of a lot of public discussion since. Do you know, was that vote bipartisan or was it partisan? To release it? The vote ended up being a 100% partisan vote. There wasn't a single Democrat who voted to release the information. That's unfortunate. But after that, Hunter Biden's lawyers really went after Shapley, didn't they? Yeah, they have come after him. And this has been a problem that really manifested itself even last year. You look at Gary Shapley's testimony, and he talks about how he learned in August a year ago that 
Hunter Biden's lawyer, Chris Clark, had told prosecutors, if you charge my client, it will be a career killer for you. And this has been their MO throughout. And so about a month or so ago, we learned for the first time from press reports that Hunter Biden's attorneys had argued to DOJ that they should go after our client, Gary Shapley, because they alleged they'd broken federal laws about grand jury material, which is patently untrue. We were extremely careful throughout, again, both in terms of the taxpayer privacy laws and steered entirely clear of any grand jury material. So this was just a frivolous allegation, but it was made to the same DOJ that we know would subsequently be helping to craft this sweetheart plea deal for Hunter Biden. And so it was an alarming thing for us to see in the news reports even then. As we got closer to the plea hearing for Hunter Biden, Chairman Smith took those transcripts from the behind the scenes whistleblower interviews that we sat in on and put those into an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief that tried to inform Judge Noriega that there were a lot of significant problems here that she ought to be aware of. And when he submitted that to the court just a few days before the plea deal hearing, Hunter Biden's attorneys immediately wrote to Chairman Smith's attorneys and claimed that there was information in there that had been illegally disseminated. That's when you had the whole imbroglio over someone on Hunter's legal team calling the court, the clerk for the court, and either implying or in a case of mistaken identity, being mistaken for someone on Chairman Smith's legal team asking to take documents down, which they initially did, which Judge Noriega was very unhappy about and issued a show cause order that evening as to why she shouldn't issue sanctions against Hunter Biden's legal team. But then the next day after the plea deal was rejected, the very next place the Hunter's attorneys went was after our clients submitting an additional filing to the court that specifically said that those exhibits before it had just been a broad allegation that there was information in there that shouldn't have been, including social security numbers, uh, taxpayer private information. Again, after the plea deal fell through, they specifically alleged that the whistleblower transcripts included grand jury material, again, taxpayer private material. And this was a definite shot across the bow of our client, across the bow of Joseph Ziegler, the case agent. And is very concerning because, again, these attorneys have made clear that they have no qualms about making this frivolous allegations and then going to great lengths to pursue those. If you're a whistleblower, in addition to needing protection from your employer, you may well be faced with legal fees and problems as the person that you're blowing the whistle on hires the attorneys. Now, you have a legal fund at defendwhistleblowers.com. How does that help people like Special Agent Shapley? Well, so we set up this special fund for law enforcement whistleblowers separate from our general fund so that if there are people who want to help put together sort of a war chest to be able to defend either Shapley or others like him who might want to come forward, that we will be able to hopefully have the resources to do that. And so we're asking people to donate there if they have a particular concern about law enforcement whistleblowers. It's really sort of hand-to-hand combat, isn't it? A person wants to do the right thing. They may face penalties inside their own operation. They may face a hostile lawyer for the person that's being accused. We need to be able to help whistleblowers know that they will have serious protection if they come out to help us. In that sense, what you guys are doing, it seems to me, is very, very important. Absolutely. And don't forget the human element of this, too. I mean, Gary talks a lot about how many sleepless nights he lost between 
last fall when he first started seeing things that he could not look the other way on. Think about all the stress if it's you and your job on the line and the future of your four daughters and their college, your ability to make a living. And you know that there's unlimited resources on the other side. There's the U.S. attorneys who are trying to defend their reputations. There's the very well-funded lawyers for the president's son who are going to be out there looking for any way they can to tear you apart. It's one thing I try to impress upon people on Capitol Hill and people in the IG world. These are real human beings, and they're going through real struggles. And this isn't just about headlines and fundraising or whatever if you're in Congress. I mean, this is about real people with real wrongdoing that they're trying to report that needs to be remedied. Well, listen, Tristan and Jason, I want to thank you for joining me. I also want to thank you for the patriotic work you're doing. I think the work you and the team at Empower Oversight are doing is essential to holding our government accountable and supporting whistleblowers is a key piece of that. And I want to let our listeners know if they'd like to find out more about Empower Oversight, they can go to your website at empower.us. That's E-M-P-O-W-R dot U-S. And I'm really grateful, the two of you, and I thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we appreciate the invite. Thank you very much. Thank you to my guests, Tristan Levitt and Jason Foster. You can learn more about Empower Oversight on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994 marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 